All right, welcome to day eight of Journey Through Scripture. Today we're going to be looking at Genesis chapters 17 through 18, Matthew 6, 25 through 7, 23, and Proverbs 1, 8 through 19. So let's go first to Genesis chapter 17. You might recall from yesterday that uh, in chapter 15, God establishes a formal covenant with Abram. Here in chapter 17, um, it gets fleshed out more. Um, chapter 15 is the, I, I suppose we could say, is the, the basics of the, the covenant with Abram. And chapter 17 is uh, maybe, let's say, Abrahamic Covenant 2.0. <laughs> um, uh, but it does occur significantly further in time. So I think it's worth noting that the very last verse of chapter 16 says that Abram is 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to him. And, um, of course, the, the covenant in chapter 15 is before that even. Um, and here, in the very next verse, the first verse of chapter 17, we're told he's 99 years old. So from, from 86 to 99, Abram is living with the presupposition that Ishmael is the heir of the covenant, the son that was born through the uh, union of Abram and Hagar, uh, Sarai's concubine. And um, per, uh, presumably that God had, uh, had, or had had given him an heir and, okay, I guess that's uh, who this land's going to be given to. What, what else is there for me to do? Um, a bunch of these scenes in Abraham's life now will kind of get like that. Um, where it kind of seems like it could be over, but then God's got uh, another chapter for him. And so God does appear to him. The Lord appears to him, and he says, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. Uh, sometimes we think of the Abrahamic covenant, or, or many think of the Abrahamic covenant as something that is totally unconditional. There's nothing, there are no obligations whatsoever on Abram. Remember, uh, God is the one who passed through the pieces in chapter 15, but um, that's a bit of an oversimplification. A Abram is required to do certain things and walk before him and be blameless. Um, you know, it doesn't mean be perfect, never sin, okay? Uh, Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. That doesn't mean Noah ever did anything sinful, but um, this is a call to, to righteous life, um, just as we will see in chapter 18, where God in verse, um, uh, in verse 19 says that I've chosen him, uh, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, uh, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. So it's, it's probably incorrect to think of the covenant with Abraham as just totally unconditional. Abram has no obligations under it. Um, and then Abram falls, um, uh, falls on his face before God, and a bunch of new aspects, new facets of these promise, the promises are promises made. And there's nothing um, entirely new here, but um, this is sharpened, and, and the emphases certainly start to um, start to show. So first of all, he's told to become. He's told that he's going to be made to a multitude of nations in verses four through five. Um, which, of course, is very interesting. Looking back on it from a New Testament perspective, Abraham, the father of many nations, um, 
this that is something that is truly fulfilled in Christ, right? That is where Abraham truly becomes the father of many nations. Those of us who are of faith, as Galatians says, are of the children of Abraham. Um, and uh, corresponding to this, God changes his name from Abram to Abraham. Um, and uh, Abra- and the, the reason given, given in the text, and, and this is sometimes handy to know, is not that Abraham means father of many nations, uh, rather it sounds like father of many nations. So the Hebrew is Av Hamon Goyim, okay, that is certainly not, uh, uh, Av Hamon is not Avraham, okay, but it sounds like it. So uh, oftentimes biblical names are based on puns and don't mean exactly that thing. Ishmael does mean exactly God hears or God will hear, but here, this is um, more of a pun that it's based off of. But the, the idea is he's going to be a father of a multitude of nations. Note also in verse 6, a royal aspect is introduced. Kings will come from you. Um, so God, remember, this is patched into God's promise all the way back in Genesis 3.15 of the crushing of the head of the serpent. Now that we know that there's going to be nations involved, a a nation, a great multitude, that kings will be involved, right? Everything is just coming a little bit more into focus. Um, But the real big, uh, I think, flavor of this chapter has to do with the fact that that here, more than anywhere else that we've seen, is the notion of of the covenant being transmitted to Abraham's offspring. So you see this specifically uh, in verses like 7 through 10. So I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant. So this idea of an enduring covenant throughout all generations of Abraham's offspring is is something that... uh, it did not necessarily follow from what God had already said, but now it is certainly in view. Um, and uh, the, the other thing that uh, is kind of interesting is that note how God, back in verse 1, identifies himself as God Almighty. The Hebrew expression for that is El Shaddai. Um, and it's almost certain that it that does not actually mean God Almighty, um, I'm not going to go into why English translations usually render that, uh, El Shaddai as God Almighty, but it probably means something maybe a little less exciting, God of the field or God of the stepland step or the hills or the meadows or possibly even the mountain. Um, and, uh, what, uh, what this, what this, uh, uh, the, is, is, you know, it's not that, that's not that exciting to us, of course, but if you are a a pastoralist, a shepherd like Abraham, right? And you, your living is through flocks and everything. It's a good thing that your God is the God of the fields. Um, and, uh, and, and so this, this seems to be somewhat of a, of a family name, uh, of Abraham and his, and his offspring. In fact, interestingly, if you go to Exodus chapter six, verse three, uh, God tells Moses straight up, look, I wasn't even known by my name, Yahweh, to, uh, to Abraham, um, Isaac, and Jacob. They knew me by the name El Shaddai. So that, that was kind of my name for them. And if you look throughout the rest of Genesis, um, every time El Shaddai is used, there is some kind of concern for the family, for the posterity. Um, 
So, for example, when Jacob has to leave the land and Isaac fears that he'll never see him again, he invokes El Shaddai's name to bless him. Take care of my son. Take care of my posterity. Um, And then here, the other thing that this chapter, I suppose, is very well known for is circumcision. This is given as the sign of the covenant of Abraham. And everyone, eight days old and over in his house, whether born there or or purchased as a servant, um, must be circumcised. Um, and now this, of course, is a little bit strange if you think about it. I mean, we've heard it, we hear it enough in the Bible that maybe it does its strangeness, it loses its strangeness a little bit. But when you think about it, you're kind of like, well, what does that have to do with anything, God? Uh, but it, it's actually quite simple. Um, n- note again here how this chapter deals very much with Abraham's offspring, and this covenant very much has to do with something that is transmitted through seed, through offspring. In Hebrew, it's the same word, seed, offspring. Um, and so the organ of the male that produces that seed is marked with the sign of the covenant. And that's kind of the idea. So Abram, Abraham now goes and does this. Further, um, the attention is then turned to Sarai in chapter in verse 15. Um, and God tells uh, Abraham that he's actually going to give Abraham a son by her. Okay, so it's, and, and then, and you could tell what page Abraham is on with this, right? Because he falls on his face to this and he laughs, like, that sounds so crazy, God. Um, and he says, shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? Right? It sounds sounds ridiculous. And he says, oh, that Ishmael may live before you. Remember, he thinks that Ishmael is the child of the promise here. But God says, no, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son. And oh yeah, you just laughed at that. It seemed so incredible that I would do something like that for you. Well, guess what? You're going to call his name, he laughs, <laughs> right? You're going to call his name Yitzchak, meaning he laughs. So that every time you say this kid's name, you're going to remember that you have a God who does what you thought was impossible. And, um, of course, here you also have, you know, and, and God just explicitly says, he's the one I'm going to establish my covenant with. He's the one who, through whom the covenant will be transmitted. I will take care of Ishmael. Twelve princes will come from him. And, uh, you know, I, I, I'm not going to, to, to cast him aside, but the one through whom the covenant will go will be Isaac. And um, that's chapter 17. Then in chapter 18, and it's probably not that far after chapter 17. I mean, it's enough so that Abraham can run in this chapter after he's been circumcised. But um, uh, Abraham is kind of hanging out in his, in his homestead. And it says, the Lord appeared to him and he sees three men standing in front of him. Now, it's it seems as the narrative unfolds, it seems that this is a physical manifestation of the Lord, which God, who can do anything, can certainly do as well as two angelic messengers. Um, angels in the Bible are not necessarily these uh, winged beings or anything like that, certainly not cute little babies with bow and arrows um, who are often naked, as you see in uh, Hallmark or whatever, but these are um, oftentimes just, just appear to be human beings. Uh, and uh, But Ab- Abraham... Uh, 
recognizes them. That's not fully explained, but he seems to know who his visitors are. This is a man who has walked with God intimately and who has uh, God to whom God has appeared uh, several times already. And so, Abraham, when Abraham sees God or is appeared to by God, he knows it. Um, the narrative just doesn't flesh in exactly how that is. And he goes out of his way to bless him and this this hospitality, right? He's like, let a little morsel of food and some water be brought, right? And then and they're like, all right, well, let's, let's have some lunch. And Abraham goes and he like makes this insane amount of food. Um, he says, he says, make three sayas of, take three sayas of flour, knead it and make cake. Uh, that's, that's like 20 quarts, like five gallons of flour. Okay. That's a lot of flour. That's a lot of bread. He has an entire calf killed and, um, and made so like this isn't something they whipped up in 15 minutes this is sarah commanding the you know the everyone in the household to to double time and and make this thing happen and provide this extravagant meal um and he sets it before the lord and the messengers and um god um gives uh, uh reiterates the promise at that time and Sarah is in the tent, and she laughs at it too, and uh, she denies it, right? She's, he says, God says, why'd you laugh at that? And she's like, no, I, I didn't. I swear I didn't laugh. He's like, ah, but you did laugh. Just remember. And again, notice all the attention being brought to her laughter. Isaac, he laughs. Abraham laughed when God told him. He wants us to to think of, um, of when, when we think of Isaac, who will eventually come in a few more chapters, um, we are to think of uh, some uh, of God who is, whose power and what he does for his people is so extraordinary that w- that 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 the normal human response would be to laugh at it um, and uh, certainly God has done much greater things for his people since then but you got to keep in mind this is the this is the story unfolding okay uh, and then God reveals that he has come to also respond to the outcry that has come against the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, two of the cities of the Dead Sea Valley, uh, one of which uh, um, Lot dwells in. And, um, and, And Abraham begins to intercede before the Lord, and he kind of bargains the Lord down, right? He says, you know, are you going to destroy this city for, you know, what, what happens if you find 50 righteous people in it? Are you going to sweep a whole, away the whole city? Um, why not? Can you not spare it for their sake? And God's like, okay, I will do that. And uh, Abraham whittles him down till he gets all the way down um, to, what is it, 10 people? Suppose 10 are there, and for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And uh, this is... Um, very interesting. So God, Abraham, first of all, interceding not on behalf of righteous people, right? Because the idea is like, you know, it's not that you would sweep away righteous, but that you'd sweep away, uh, that you would not spare the wicked on behalf of the righteous. The righteous influence in the city would not, you know, would not spare God's judgment, God's hand of judgment against this group of people. And, um, and so we see Abraham, this man of faith, this man of God, interceding on behalf of people who, who don't deserve God's mercy. Uh, we also see his persistence, right? That he's not afraid to be bold and, and to know and to ask for what he wants. Uh, this is another—remember, we remember we just read for, with Jesus, the Lord teaches how to pray. 
But the other thing that I think is very interesting is that while Abraham's prayer is bold and he's not afraid to ask for what he wants, it's also very humble. He realizes who it is that he's asking. And so you have like, I've presumed to to speak to the Lord one more time, I who am but dust and ashes, right? Like there's this, there's this interplay in our prayer between boldness and between humility, because we know the one of whom we are asking these things. And, um, as I often like to say, as this chapter leaves off, the uh, God's God's prayer with Abraham is is or Abraham's prayer with God is that uh, ends ends with the idea that if there are ten righteous people in the city, God will spare the city, which leaves the cliffhanger. What if there are fewer than ten? Okay, let's go to uh, Proverbs uh, chapter one verses eight through nineteen. Uh, and we will we will pick up with that cliffhanger tomorrow. Um, so this is a, a little vignette. Remember, we we covered the beginning of Proverbs a few days ago, where um, you have essentially a wise father um, adjuring his son to acquire wisdom, to seek wisdom, to 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 gain it, um, and and to. Uh, receive instruction. Don't be foolish. Listen to wisdom. Listen to what those who have come before you have said. And the first little uh, uh, vignette, the first little um, uh, lesson here is against unjust gain. Okay, it's a, it's against uh, enriching yourself through the suffering of other people, and of course that comes in many many forms. Um, and 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 it's my son. Don't go with sinners who are looking to do this. If they say, "Come with us," let us lie in wait for blood. Let us ambush the innocent without reason. Let Sheol let us swallow that. Like Sheol, let us swallow them alive and whole, like those who go down to the pit. By the way, Sheol here. Uh, Sheol is you can you can think of it as the grave. It is death. It is where everyone goes when they die. It's it's it shouldn't be taken to really paint like a theology of the afterlife from the Old Testament or anything. It basically just means like um, if you're in Sheol, you're dead. You're it's not thought as far as I can tell in the Old Testament, it's not conceived of as a literal place. It's like what we would say being in the grave or something. And we've actually already seen it. It it did occur. Uh, in in Psalm chapter six, and it is a term that you encounter in the Old Testament. It is not translated Sheol in Hebrew is Sheol. Uh, but the but the lesson here is that those who call, um, uh, who who might call you to come and do these things, um, they are gaining unjust gain. And the problem with unjust gain is that it devours the one who acquires it. It ultimately destroys the person who dev- who acquires it. Uh, so the last three verses, in vain is a net spread in the sight of any bird, but these, right? In other words, if a bird sees you spreading a net in front of it, you're not going to catch that bird. It's going to split. But but these men are so foolish that they're lying in wait for their own blood. Uh, they set an ambush for their own lives. Such are the ways of everyone who is greedy for unjust gain. It takes away the life of its possessors. Um so as as tempting as that might be, son, do not listen to those who entice you in that direction. And that's really, uh, aside from seek wisdom, is really the first big lesson from Proverbs. Okay, let's go to Matthew chapter 6, verses, catching up in verse 25. Here we have this familiar passage about Jesus telling us not to be anxious. Um, 
uh, knowing that knowing that God will take care of us. And this is almost it's almost kind of stunning in its naivete, right? That because we always think, well, what about those who do starve, and what about those who 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 aren't okay? And 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 that would have been obvious to Jesus and all of his hearers. But nevertheless, in a world where that is a reality, we are to live with this this tension that God does take care of you and can be trusted to take care of you. Um, there's, and it's I think it's some of these teachings that you do encounter in the Bible. You know, they have to be held in in count in in. Um, intention with one another that there there is a reality of of people who do go without but on the other hand um we are to trust god that he will take care of us as he ca- takes care of the birds as he takes care of the flowers of the field and the grass like that's where our minds are to be and knowing that um uh, that if that our first priority is not to worry so much about our clothes and our food um let alone the things that we care about in the affluent West, okay, our our cars and our computers and our super nice lawns or or, or homes or you know that are much larger than than what what we need and um, our our air conditioning, right? Um, don't worry about these things. Your father knows what you need. He knows you need them all. Your job: seek first the kingdom of God. And these things, the things that you need, will be added to you. And if you are seeking God, then I, I can tell you um, that that when you do have to go without, seeking God seems uh, is is takes on a new a new sweetness, a, a new um, preciousness, uh, knowing that. That that the Lord is all I ever had, and and now I see that. Um, he says, "Don't lay up treasures in heaven." Um, at uh, sorry, that was from yesterday. Um, rather in chapter seven and on. Um, we're gonna we start we're gonna start kind of getting to a little bit more random teachings. Um, this may have been an abbreviation of the sermon that Jesus actually preached. Right, read it front like from beginning to end. You'll finish it in under ten minutes. Um, but you have here uh, this this prohibition against judgment, lest we be judged. Um, and I, I think that this is um, it's it's not as if the Christian is never called to judge, right? Other elsewhere in the Bible, we are called to judge sin. There are even people in the Gospels um, who judge sin. John the Baptist, right? He's able to say to Herod when Herod is 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 sinning, um, uh, or uh, to you know to 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 Herod's family members. Um, and the, uh, but I, th- I think the idea here is against judgmentalism, and it's against uh, pronouncing judgment on people when you yourself have not taken care of the log that is in your own eyes. So don't try to take the speck out of someone else's and focus on what everyone else is doing wrong if you haven't attended to yourself first. Um, very important reminder. And what I think is interesting about that is that he says to everyone who hears this, why do you see the speck in your brother's eye, but not the log that's in your own eye, right? He says that to everyone. In other words, we are to be on the running assumption that we have logs in our eyes, um, <laughs> right? Because if you think of this 
ultra literally, well, some people obviously are going to have specs and some people will have logs. He's like, no, everyone, as far as you're concerned, you've got a log in your eye. Attend to that first and then attend to the specs in your brothers. That should be your attitude and that should be your attitude in dealing with sin and things like that. Remember, again, even in this, right, do not judge does not mean that you can never make a judgment, that you can never speak to sin, because Jesus, even in this in this little lesson, is saying you should remove the speck from your brother's eye. He's just saying you should remove the one from your own first. Um, uh, you've got um, uh, trust in God, ask and it will be given to you. Bring your requests to him in, in prayer. You've got do unto others how you would have them do to you. All of these are exceedingly wise and, and deserve much, much meditation. Um, and then you have this enter by the narrow gate in verse 13. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. This, like some of the other things I've already mentioned today, uh, here in the words of Jesus, is something that needs to be balanced. Uh, that this is not the only thing that's said in the Bible that speaks to the hardness or easiness of following Christ. And that's an interesting question, right? Because in just a few chapters in Matthew's Gospel, in chapter 11, He's going to be come. He's going to say, "Be saying, come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest, because my yoke is easy and my burden is light." And so it's like, well, what is it, Jesus? Is is the way narrow and hard, or is it a yoke that's easy and light? And it all depends on how you're thinking of it. Okay, on the one hand, it is very hard to follow Jesus. He calls us to take up our cross. That is not a pleasant thing. That is not an easy thing. Dying to self, being crucified to yourself, as Paul would would say of himself, living on mission for God is hard. Not to mention the fact that it's narrow, right? There's one way. Christ is the way. and, and, And there are many things that can knock you off of that path. But on the other hand, it is easy in that all of the work has already done by Christ, and all you have to do is stay on the path. Okay, all you have to do is walk that. In other words, I don't need to be better in order to be worthy of Jesus. I'm not worthy of Jesus, but Jesus makes me worthy to be called his disciple, to be called a child of God, and to enter into God's presence forever. And um, and 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 in that sense, his burden is light. Because all you have to do, there is nothing stopping anyone hearing my voice right now for living as a fully committed disciple of Christ right now and for the rest of their life, okay? Uh, going forth to, into this day, totally um, walking, totally pleasing to the Lord. There's nothing you have to do. It's been done for you. But on the other hand, that way is narrow and, and the road can be hard. So there's those two tensions. And if you just think of it as easy, you will run afoul. And if you just think of it as hard, you will run afoul. It is easy and it is hard. It's easy in a different way than it's hard. And it's hard in a different way than it's easy. Um, And the two, both are things that need to be embraced by Jesus' disciple. Um, Because there is such a thing as fruit, right? And the way we know we are his is by 
our fruit. And here, I don't think that fruit primarily refers to like how many people I lead to Jesus, right? How healthy is the church that I'm that I'm uh, leading or participating in? Although that can definitely be related to it, um, those both those things can be related to it. Uh, <clears throat> but fruit tends to be in the Bible things like uh, you know the 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 fruit of righteousness in one's own life, the fruit of 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 spiritual maturity. Think of the fruits of the spirit in Galatians. Um, and that's how you know a tree. Okay, I always say we're amateur fruit inspectors. Uh, I don't know everything about it. I, I don't know exactly how much fruit there should be if I'm looking at your life, nor do I know how quickly it should come. But I know that if there's no fruit, I that there's going to be some problem. And looking at my own life, I can make the same kind of judgment that there's something wrong here. Something's not adding up. You will know a tree by its fruit. And that's how we are to judge whether or not one truly knows the Lord, whether or not I truly know the Lord. Uh, Because we are to know that on that day, not everyone who comes and says to Jesus, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but rather the one who does the will of the Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? These are miraculous things. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Um, note here also this notion that the king of the kingdom of God, right? It's inaugurated. Jesus is here. He's saying, it's here. Repent. Follow me. The kingdom of God is at hand. But here we have a very future aspect of it as well. On that day, there will be a judgment and there will be an ultimate reward for those who follow Christ and who do truly know him. Okay. Thank you for joining us today. Look forward for tomorrow. And until then, take care. Bye-bye.